that's, yeah, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. You know, that's one of the things uh, that's great about reading the Word of God out loud is you have to pronounce all of those hard words. You just don't silently read over them. Hey, let's begin with a word of prayer before we jump into the book of Judges. Father, grant us this day eyes that see and ears that hear. Grant us this day the understanding, Father, of the passages that are laid out before us, this ancient Word that You have delivered to us through Your Spirit in such a way, Father, that that we are moved forward in our likeness, Jesus. We are thankful for so many things in this life, Father. We We are filled with gratitude. We are filled with appreciation that words will never be able to 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 wield the the emotion of our gratefulness that we have toward You. But we do pray, Father, that we will be strengthened in our resolve to, to live as Your disciples and to trust You and, and to, to, to be unwavering in our faithfulness to You each and every day. And that You will, Father, help us in all the different ways that You work in Your people to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And to this end, Father, we pray in His name. Amen. If you have visited with us, uh, if you're a visitor this morning and have visited with us maybe before this morning, you know that one of the things that we're doing in 2014 is we're beginning with Genesis and we're, we're spending some time every Sunday morning and sometimes on Sunday night going through the entire Bible book by book. And the reason for that is we want to know better the, the biblical narrative. We want to be more acquainted with the Word of God. We want to be more fluent in the language and the teachings of the Bible. And one of the things, as Norris alluded to in his communion devotional that we've said at the beginning of every sermon, is this little statement that we believe is a church. And the statement is this, it's up on the screen, the Bible is not a collection of random stories, but it's one story. It's one story about God, it's one story about God and man and what went wrong and what God is doing to put it back together. Now this morning we find ourselves in the book of Judges. When we got to the end of Torah, or the Pentateuch, the last book being of Moses, the last book being Deuteronomy, Moses has died. We, get, we go to the next book, which is Joshua. And at the end of that book, in chapter 24, at the age of 110, Joshua dies. Now we find ourselves in a place of, of Israel's history where there's not a, a, a singular champion, there's not a singular uh, leader to lead God's people. In fact, what we read, and this is the name of the book, what we find is that there are these individuals known as judges. The Hebrew word is shofetim. These are the judges that are leading God's people. Now, one of the things to understand about the judges is that we're not to understand them in the juridical sense that we do in the Western world or in, in America today. There is you know, the sense in which a judge, the way we think about it today, is somebody that holds court, listens to complaints, and renders judgments. Now, this does take place in the book of Judges. Don't want to deny that. Uh, Deborah, for instance, is one of the judges that does this kind of judging that we're familiar with. But by and far, in, 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 in the greatest sense, the judges are really military chieftains. They're, they're military people. They're individuals that are raised up by God to rally God's people and deliver them from their enemies. And if you look at Judges chapter 2 and verse 16, again, it's up here on the screen. It's, it's highlighted there on your outline for you. There is this phrase that, that really helps us to understand what the biblical judges were doing in this book. Then the Lord raised up, what? 
judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Well, the first thing that that hits you with is that this is in such stark contrast with Joshua. Joshua ends with things going pretty well. By the time you get to the middle of Joshua, chapter 11 and verse 23, the last verse of that chapter, we're told that the land had rest from war. It's a time of peace after a time of war. And then the rest of Joshua going all the way to chapter 24 is really about the dividing up of the land and where the Levites were going to live and the cities of refuge and all of these kinds of things. But then Judges is completely different. Judges, in the words of David Howard, who's a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Illinois, says Judges consists of a series of independent episodes. It's a bunch of stories tied together, all joined by a common motif of Israel's apostasy and God's faithfulness. The overall impression is one of near chaos in Israel's political and spiritual life, salvaged only by God's repeated intervention and provision. In other words, Israel, through violent entanglements, and religious malpractice has spiraled down into a spiritual mess. Violent entanglements and religious malpractice, and they're spiraling down into a spiritual mess. When you read Judges, and I don't know if, if you were able to finish the entire book this week, but when you read Judges, it is not a happy book. It is not a warm and fuzzy book by, by far. You go to chapter 3 and you've got the judge Ehud who delivers Israel from the, the Moabites by assassinating their king Eglon who in chapter 3 verse 17 is described as a very fat man. And Ehud goes in and sticks the sword all the way inside of him and the fat overtakes that sword and Ehud is barely able to get his hands free. And then in chapter 4 you have Jael who is a woman who drives a tent peg through the temple of Sisera who is the leader of the Canaanite enemy of Israel, as he hides and he sleeps in the tent, her tent, after being defeated in battle. And then you go over to chapter 11, you have Jephthah, who makes this tragic vow to the Lord that he's going to make a burnt offering, a burnt sacrifice, out of the first person that comes out of the doors of his house towards him. And it turns out to be his, his daughter. And the vow was... I'm going to sacrifice that person if you give me the Ammonites in victory, which God does, and Jephthah keeps his word. And then you have Samson, who marries the daughter of a Philistine in chapter 14. He gets into an escalating tit-for-tat contest with the Philistines that ends with his wife and her father being burned alive by the Philistines in their house. And then toward the end of the book, in chapter 19... A concubine is raped by several worthless men from Gibeah, from the tribe of Benjamin, and she dies. And in retaliation, she's cut up into 12 pieces, and the pieces sent to the 12 tribes of Israel, and civil war breaks out against the tribe of Benjamin, and 25,000 of their young people are killed because of this crime. That's in the Bible. Truly. Judges is a book filled with about 300 to 350 years of gruesome human activity. This last week, I having lunch with Ben Bailey and John Skipworth and my son Jordan, and I mentioned the fact that I've been reading and thinking and studying Judges, and after reading and studying and thinking about Judges, I was feeling kind of gooey and not in a good way. 
I mean, I just felt like there was all this goo that had been heaped up in my soul. But, the Bible is not a collection of random stories, is it? It's one story about God and about man and about what went wrong and what God is doing to bring it, to put it back together, to bring it back all together again. And so there is great value in the book of Judges, even for us who live in the Western world in the 21st century. Let me give you a couple of them. Number one, a spiritual truth from Judges is this. Never underestimate the power of seduction. Never, ever, ever underestimate the power of seduction. I'm, I, let me ask you a question. What does infidelity in a marriage, TV commercials, magazine ads, and NFL players breaking contracts all have in common? What do they have in common? Simply put, a lack of appreciation for what they have coupled with the fear of missing out on something better. Now, I'm not so naive as to think that every situation is the same and that there's not complexities involved. I mean, we're talking about human beings and their relationships. But here's the thing. Seduction does not work if you're satisfied and if you feel fulfilled. Seduction does not work if you're happy. Seduction does not work if you feel fulfilled in your life. Seduction is a malignant force that only works, friends, it only works if you don't recognize and appreciate the treasure that you have. Seduction only works if you don't recognize it and appreciate this treasure that you have in your hand. And all human beings are susceptible to this kind of blindness. It hits all of us. It's the power of the idol. It's at the heart of the original sin. Adam and Eve are living in paradise. They have a relationship with God that is unparalleled by any other human being on the face of the earth until the time of Jesus and none since then. And they're walking with Him in that garden. Every need is taken care of and they are together and they are alive in ways that, that you and I have never experienced life. And all of a sudden there's a lie that comes from the mouth of the serpent that says, why be satisfied with that when there might be something else? It's at the heart of the original sin. And no sooner do we get through the first chapter of, of Judges than there is this angel of the Lord, uh, one of these mysterious figures, we don't have time to talk about the angel of God or the angel of the Lord this morning, but this angel comes up from Gilgal to a place called Bochim, which means weepers, and weepers as in crying. And he's there. He comes up to Bochim to address all of Israel and to rebuke them for their faithlessness. And he, God, speaking through this angel, says, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall, you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land. But you shall break down their altars, yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. And at the end of the book of Judges, we read in chapter 21 and verse 25, New American Standard, very literal, says in those days there was no king in Israel. 
everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel has conquered the land, but not completely. And what was at the beginning something to be hostile towards has now become attractive. And those Canaanite cities of the late Bronze Age are looking pretty good. They're filled with things that Israel itself did not have, physically and materially speaking. Materialism was as big a problem then for them as it is for us today. And we've talked about the pantheon uh, uh, Canaanite God system that was there to describe how the world worked. It was a potent force, especially when you coupled it with, with sexual activity with priestesses and priests. And those five gods of the, the, the five head gods of the Canaanite pantheon was a potent force. You had El, who was the head of all of the gods, kind of a relatively weak god, but he had a wife by the name of Asherah, who was El's wife, and she was very, very powerful. You had Baal, we usually say Baal, but uh, probably better pronounced Baal. He is a storm god. He is a fertility god. He, you know, rain makes the, the ground fertile. And so you would go to the temple and you would have a sexual relationship with the priestess in order to bring the rain upon the land. And then you have his sister, Astarte. Some of the texts have it as uh, uh, Ashtoreth. And she is a fertility goddess of love and war. And then you have another sister to Baal, a, a, a goddess by the name of Anat. She's not only his sister, but his wife. And she is bloodthirsty. She is the one that wants to fight all the time. And also a goddess of war and love. And you have these gods that are being appealed to in order for the rain to come and the land to produce and everybody to have what they need rather than trusting the God that brought them water and manna in the desert. And although you have in the book of Judges a very active presence of God among His people, the rivals proved powerful and they were able to wedge their way into the hearts of the people. Many of you have read the works of C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, uh, The Abolition of Man, probably the most famous out of all of his apologetic books, Mere Christianity, fantastic book. If you've never read it, get a copy of it and, and read it from, from cover to cover. Inside of mere Christianity, there is a very timely quote by Lewis where he says, Faith, in the sense in which I'm here using the word, is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. In spite of your changing moods. I don't know about you, but usually the moods change. There, there's usually two different reasons in my own life why moods change. One, I can't explain. The mood just changes. just changes. The other one comes when I'm challenged. And what's, what Lewis is saying about faith is that at the essence of faith, faith, the way the Bible talks about it, and the way that he's using it in this sentence is the ability, it's the art of holding on to something that you know in your reason, in your brain, and in your mind, and in your heart, and your soul to be true, and you don't give that up just because there's a mood change or a mood swing inside of your heart. Now that describes a lot of what we find in the Western world. And not just in Western culture, but what we find in our own country and what we find a lot in Christendom and what we find a lot even in our own church family.
that we are willing to give up those things we know to be true about God when the, when, when it, when the road becomes a little rough and inclined in difficulty. And we find ourselves not, not, not experiencing the joy or the happiness or the greatness of, of, of relationship with God as it's talked about so much in the evangelical world that as soon as that's not happening, then we change and we go to something else. We have, to, we have to be careful, church, of the power of seduction in our culture, wherever it's found. And then number two, because that's true, remember that continuous faithlessness leads to spiritual decay. Chronic unfaithfulness does something to the heart and the soul of the human being. It fragments it. It, it begins a, it, it's a slow disintegration. Now, one of the ways that you can organize the book of Judges if you're organizing it in your mind, is to do it by the, 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 the judges themselves. There are six major judges in Judges. Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. But another way, I think a more practical way, is to do it by the, way that, by the, the times that this recurring statement, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, appears in the book. In Judges chapter 2, verse 11, then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. You go to chapter 3, verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. Chapter 3, verse 12, five verses later. Again, Israelites, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And you get the idea. It's a cycle that continues. Chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 10, chapter 13. It's a cycle in Judges. And one of the things that you, you begin to pick up on as you read over and over through Judges is that a lifestyle of disobedience is, is not just sin. It's not just rebellion against God, but it's a slippery slope. As you read what's happening in Judges, that disobedience that you read about becomes more serious, it becomes more debased, it becomes more awful, it becomes more gruesome. Each cycle of unfaithfulness in Judges takes Israel further downward in its relationship with God. And so what you find is that now we have this incredibly dangerous time in the history of Israel. In Judges... Nations would come and oppress Israel very cruelly. And God would come and raise up a judge who would rally Israel to himself and the people would rise up and shake off the shackles and throw off her oppressors and, and, and defeat them in, in victory in a battle. But by the time you get to Samson, Israel likes captivity to Philistia. They like the Philistines. And you know why? The Philistines, at least at this point in history, are not cruel to Israel. They're not cruel. They're not, they're not treating them necessarily poorly, even though they, they are oppressing them at, at, at one level. It's not that they're cruel, but they're absorbing her. They're beginning to absorb Israel through intermarriage and through economics and through religion. And this is a terribly dangerous time for Israel. Israel is close to losing her distinctiveness. Israel is close to being absorbed into one of the nations. And God raises up this fellow by the name of Samson who is a strong man to fight the Philistines. But now he's the only one. He's the only one. But here's the thing about God that you and I both know. God can save through one, right? And so during this period of time, Samson gets married to a Philistine woman. 
And during the wedding ceremony or the, the feast, he tells a wedding riddle, kind of a bet between he and some of the, the, the family and the extended uh, family of this Philistine wife. And the Philistines cheat him and they beat him at the riddle. Samson gets mad. He kills 30 of them. They retaliate by refusing him access to his Philistine wife. Samson retaliates by burning their fields. They retaliate by burning his wife and her father alive in their home. Samson retaliates by killing more of them. And then he goes and he lives in the rock by Etah. That's in the Bible. Well, things are getting out of hand quickly. And the Philistine army actually comes into Judah and they come to this place called Lehi. And as you know, they're not just camping out. The army is spreading out at Lehi. And Israel knows that this is trouble. And Israel asks, why are you here? And the Philistines say, we are after Samson and we're going to do to him as he has done to us. And surprisingly... Israel says, wait right here, we'll go get him. And do you remember how many Israelites go to get Samson at the Rock of Utah? 3,000. 3,000 Israelites go and find Samson and they say, verse 11, listen, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? You see, Israel likes the status quo of enslavement to Philistia. And they want to get rid of Samson because he's disturbing the peace. They don't want Samson to be their deliverer. And so what do they do? They bind him up with ropes and they hand him over to his enemies. But very, very importantly, remember the conversation that they have. I will go as long and I will allow you to bind me up as long as you don't kill me. They go, no, we're not going to kill you. We're just going to bind you up and we're going to deliver you to the Philistines. And that they do. And it's because of their rejection of him that he is able to save them. He saves them not in spite of their rejection, but through their rejection. And once handed over, there's this enormous power of God that comes down on Samson and he breaks the ropes that bound him and he grabs the jawbone of the donkey and he wipes out that Philistine army. And there is this wordplay in the Hebrew that goes like this. He says, I, with the jawbone of a donkey, have made a donkey, which is the same word for hill, out of donkeys. I mean, Samson's not taking the high road here. I have made a donkey out of donkeys, with the jawbone of a donkey. And he has literally covered the ground with dead bodies. And what Samson has done here is a victory that accrues for all of Israel. Back in the ancient times, as you know, you sent forth your champion, David and Goliath. David, as the champion of Israel, goes out, fights Goliath. He wins. His victory accrues to all of Israel. His victory becomes their victory over what it is or who it is that is enslaving them. And then something kind of curious happens. Samson becomes thirsty to the point of death. And I don't think this is hyperbole. You see, and, and mainly because of the, the flannel graph uh, pictures of, of Samson, we usually in the movies, we usually think of Samson that looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Let me give you the Absher theory. I think he looked more like Barney Fife. His strength is from whom? God. And this great power comes over him and he's able to slay all of these soldiers, all of these men. 
But that great power has now taken a toll on his human body and nearly consumes him. And he is really about to die. And God comes and brings him back from the precipice. By opening up this hollow place, the water comes out and Samson drinks and is revived. And although Samson wins that battle, it doesn't last. Israel just about falls off the spiritual map. But this story in chapter 15 of Judges does point to something down the road. And that is God's faithfulness brings the ultimate strong man. Centuries later, God sends another strong man who appears in Israel. And God once again saves through one deliverer. The Christ comes and He fights actually two battles. He fights the battle that is called the life that we all should have lived. You know, any time that we think that we're living a life that somehow merits God's attention or merits God's favor... Let's just take one of the small little commands in the Bible about controlling the tongue. And I challenge you, if you think that way, that your life is so holy and pure that it warrants God acting on your behalf and to give you the life that you think you deserve. Just take one little command about controlling the tongue and just go one week. Go five days. Why don't you just go one day with a controlled tongue? Don't gossip. Don't lie. Don't say anything that is untoward. Control that tongue. And he fought the second battle, which was the death that we should have died. He dies on the cross as the ultimate strong man. The weak, what are they going to do as they're they're, they're being crucified or they're being executed? They're going to call the curses of God down on the people that are executing Him. What does God's ultimate strong man do? As they're pounding those nails into him, he says what? Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Can you imagine that kind of strength? And the Christ is not just bound with cords, but actually with the, with the cords of death, with the bands of death. And at the end, as He goes into the precipice where our sins supposedly are taking us, God does not just revive Him, but resurrects Him. And He is our champion, and His victory becomes our victory. And 50 days later, 50 days after that resurrection, 3,000 of those that were there when He was handed over to His enemies to be killed like Samson are now baptized and saved. They didn't want to be saved by Him, but now they are treated by God as if they had won the battle over sin and death. But there is a big difference between Christ and Samson. Samson heaped up bodies. He filled the earth with dead bodies. Now what in the world does that have to do with Christ? Well, we, we go to the psalm. Psalm 110 is the most one of the most quoted texts in all of the New Testament. Verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That one we're familiar with. Look at the very end of that psalm, verses 6 and 7. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. It sounds like Samson. 
but it's a messianic psalm. And in Ephesians, Paul draws on Psalm 110 and says, This Christ that was crucified in Jerusalem during Passover was resurrected by God and He was exalted to the right hand of God. And it's this Christ who is exalted to the right hand of God who has become the head of the church. And instead of littering the earth with corpses, and instead of filling the earth with dead bodies, He has taken all of them and made them His body. And all of those that have died in baptism and have died to themselves have been added to His body and now fill the earth as His body, as His representation, as His church, as His bride throughout the entire earth. This morning, we have an opportunity for you to become a part of that body. You know, you're never, ever, ever, ever going to be able to win that battle in which God is going to look at you and say, you know what, your life has been so great, so perfect, so majestic, so holy, that I'm going to give you whatever it is that you want because you deserve it. No, what God did and has done throughout all of history is to send a champion, to send a hero, to send a shepherd and a savior of your soul, this time in Christ, ultimately in Christ, who fought the battles, lived the life that you should have lived and has died the death that you should have died in order for you not to experience that big time death, but forever to be a part of His body and forever to be drawn to God, forever, never separated from Him, forever, forever, forever brought into His presence. Be careful of seduction. It's out there all over the place. Think of the Christ as your treasure. And know that, 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 that sin is a, a, a horrible disease of the, of the human flesh. And to not fight it, and to not fight it in the strength of God, to not fight it in the strength of Christ, to not fight it in the strength of the victory that has been won for you, but to be lackadaisical with it and flippant and not to care, is a road that will lead you to decay. But it doesn't have to be that way because God has sent the ultimate strong man who not only broke those bands of death, but conquered death. Conquered not just Philistines, but conquered death. Conquered the one enemy that even the Philistines couldn't conquer at that period of time. So that you could have life. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. If we can minister to you in any way this morning as a church family to become a part of our church family, or to grow in your, 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 your faith. Whatever it might be this morning, our shepherds are going to be down here at the front to talk to you. Come down and speak to them as we stand and sing together. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one.